Welcome to Talking Gardens with me, Stephanie Mann. My guest this episode is ethnobotanist and broadcaster James Wong, who has been speaking passionately about plants on our screens and on our airwaves for many years and setting social media alight with his beautiful indoor garden and houseplant photographs. If you were able to construct a garden in the sky, an imaginary fantasy garden, your yep. dream place with no barriers, no problems, no issues, nobody telling you, you can't do that. What what would it be for you? What would be the very first thing that you would say, oh, I've got to have that in my fantasy garden? So I originally thought about this and I kind of thought, well, your, your answer is supposed to be like, oh, I'd have a flamingo lake or like a giant geodesic dome or... <laughs> I don't know, maybe like a, a big rope bridge, Indiana Jones type rope bridge. But then I thought, you know, actually what is an impossible dream for me in my life is just a garden at all. I think particularly in my generation, in the current economic climate and where I live in the world, just having any garden is kind of my ultimate fantasy. And being able to have that would be a dream come true. But if I'm going to have that and it's going to be near me and it doesn't have to be huge, I'm, you know, modest fantasies, uh, you know, aim low and you'll never be disappointed. There are things that I would have in it. So if I could do that, I think I'd have a retractable roof or retractable Ooh. sides of it. So, you know, if I had a garden that I walked out onto, into, what I would do is create glass walls that you could slide back. And that's because I have this kind of constant discussion with my friends who are all kind of tropical plant people. If you had a fantasy garden, we've, so we've discussed it before, would you have a garden in the tropics or would you have a giant amazing glass house? And I kind of am torn, but I think that ultimately gardens are all about pulling off a fantasy. They're not about creating reality. People talk about them being natural. They're not natural at all. The natural thing would just be to let let them completely run wild and let brambles and slugs take them over. You know, gardens are a fantasy of what we'd like nature to look like. And I think if you love tropical plants, there's something about glass houses that makes them more fantastical because the plants shouldn't be there. You're creating a cathedral of glass just to make a forest, a jungle work that could otherwise not work. So I love the idea of being able to have this indoor glass house but having the benefit of, you know, just retract the roof and just remove the sides. And then you have birdsong and, and, you know, fresh air in the summer. But then even in the darkest depths of winter, you still have a tropical wonderland to escape into. Now that is James Bond. Yeah. Retractable. I it's, like it. It sounds like it's going to be James Bond, but I'm imagining tiny scale. So let's say you have maybe a five meter by 10 meter patio, like an average London back garden. If you had that retractable roof, that could be your living room. You know, you could have your, your sofas in there and your kitchen and everything, but you'd be surrounded by a koi pond and, ha and have huge tree ferns going over your sofa. And why not? You, you know, you could have all of these things uh, if you made that little, that subtle little change. I think you need to patent this idea because someone's going to take it on you. Yeah, You're going to see it in the uh, Architectural Digest soon. I mean, it's, uh, the thing is, I have definitely seen lots of London hotels that will have a tiny little courtyard and they'll have a, a roof over a certain section and not over the end. And I'm like, it's two meters more. Surely you could just add a retractable roof on that. Anyway, so yes, maybe that's, I need to patent it and that's how I'm going to afford the garden. <laughs> so in this little indoor wonderland of glass. Yeah. What else would you have to have? Okay, so if we're going to be playing with this whole indoor-outdoor stuff and we're going to be introducing like all the regular things that you would have in your home, 
outside, playing with indoor and outdoor. I think I definitely have to have an outdoor shower. They're the kind of fantasy that I grew up with looking in. You know, I used to collect books on tropical gardens, and they were always based in all most of the big photos were five-star hotels in places like Bali. And I grew up really close to Bali, but I never went because my family is a very working class family. And it's although it was very close, you know, that is an absolute fantasy. Like the closest I would ever get to see with them was print. And I just love the idea of being able to do that because fundamentally, you're sticking a faucet outdoors. It's not, it's not that <laughs> difficult to do. But the only people who came up with that idea would do it there. And I love the idea of being surrounded by plants, having a living wall and just a faucet coming out of it and it pouring down. Uh, I'm a big swimmer and I love being outdoors and I love the water. And, you know, if, if I have one big luxury, it's I like taking really long showers. You know, 10 minutes is not enough. You, when you come out, you feel completely different. It's, you know, the, there's very few things that can have that transformative effect. When you come in from a cold, tough day, and people have been really mean to you on Twitter, and you know someone shouted at you because you haven't had a deadline, you get in the shower and you're a new person after a short space of time. Imagine if you could do that, but being surrounded by orchids and you know maybe some finches flying around and uh, maybe some tree frogs just dropping around. That'd be cool. That sounds amazing. And you could, ha you realistically, you could have all of those things. You know, um, in a very small terrarium, you can have poison dart frogs. They're not poisonous in captivity, so you could easily have poison dart frogs roaming throughout your house if it was humid enough. And with that glass cover, it would be. Poison dart frogs. Yeah, they're beautiful. They're all kinds of amazing colors, but they're only poisonous if they eat the plants or the, the insects that eat certain plants in their native habitat. So they're perfectly safe as pets. Okay. It does sound like a bit of a risk to take, though, when yeah. poison's even in the name. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the thing. And, you know, the thing is, as long as you don't tell... I think it's about not being selective about which house guests you tell <laughs> they're poisonous <laughs> to, because uh, it's plausible deniability as well. Yeah. Yeah, you can these bump just, off your these enemies. These are beautiful little frogs. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Don't, don't ask about their name. <laughs> just enjoy them. We have a beautiful glass-framed garden, yeah. small, with an outdoor shower and yes. some poison dart frogs yes. dri dribbling around the place. Fantastic. What else would you have in your dream garden? Well, I mean, it's it's about connecting everything, I suppose. So if you're going to have an outdoor shower, outdoor showers are usually next to pools. It's going to be a small garden. I'm not talking Olympic-sized swimming pool. I think you could really have in, in a relatively small space, plunge pool slash lap pool. That would only need to be long enough for you to really swim four or five strokes in uh, for it to be able to give you a decent amount of exercise and look incredible. When I was growing up, you know, swimming pool designs were that kidney-shaped, fluorescent blue, like wherever they were in the world, probably with dolphin-shaped tiles, motifs underneath on the bottom. But there's been a real change in recent years. So to be able to see that technology has gotten to the point where you can keep the water clean without chlorination and you can create a natural swimming pool, I love that idea. What I haven't seen really is a natural swimming pool in the tropics. You usually see it in temperate countries. But the same principle would work indoors. And what it means is you can actually have a lot of planting in the pool. When I've seen them executed in the UK, for example, in Germany and Holland, places where they're popular, planting seems to be secondary. It's just about keeping the water clear. I want to swim in between water lilies. I want lotus pads to be around the place. I want to have, you know, lots of little guppies swimming around in between or some Vietnamese, uh, they call them butterfly koi. They're koi that have ridiculously long fins. 
It's a mutation that makes them look like butterflies or like Chinese dragons swimming around. I want to swim in that. Um, and all of that would be plausible if you don't have too many fish because they, they can muddy up the water. If you had a really good filtration system, it would work. And I think it, when it comes to linking things together, there's another thing that I'd like to help that work. I think a living wall would be a great filtration system. So instead of having a reed bed system, if you had a simple pump, and I have a lot of miniature indoor walls at home, but nothing of the scale I'd like to create. But if you had a pump that just pumped the water to the top of that wall, the growing media that it, the plants are sitting in and that the biological action of the plants themselves would act as a really effective filtration system. And in a small urban courtyard, You've got to cover walls in something, and they could be brick and look boring, or they could be literally having living wallpaper. And that could drip very easily into the pool. So you have your shower, you have your pool, and you have your living wall, and they're all sort of interconnected. They all work together. I love how, even though we're talking about your fantasy dream garden, you're still being so realistic about it. Like, That's oh, the thing. So you can't <laughs> help but design it in a way that would work and all be interconnected. Well, well see, yeah, that's. I think, um, I suppose... Because I have to design things in my really small flat where I have a lot of plants to be functional, I'm always thinking about that. And maybe because I've done a lot of show gardens, places like Chelsea Flower Show, I'm always thinking about how does that realistically work. But I think that's when design, when something is really good, it's because you've actually had to think about, but does it work? And how would it work? And when you come across these real world constraints, I think that's actually when design really functions well. Sometimes you see gardens with unlimited budget. There's no limitations whatsoever. And it just doesn't seem to make sense. Things seem to be like they've just had so much money they didn't know what to do. So they just chuck something else in. And I think when you've, when you've displayed a lot of thinking, and you, that only happens when you have boundaries, just naturally things make sense. You see it and you think, I get it. That's, that's one whole connected system that makes sense. Yeah. And you mentioned your flat. Yeah. Um, I've seen pictures of your flat for listeners who haven't. Uh -huh. James basically lives in a green oasis of houseplants, don't you? And you have these incredible projects that you put up on social media. So funnily enough, I actually had a house inspection today and because <laughs> it's a rented flat. Yeah. And I have this running joke about how I live in fear that my landlady's coming over. <laughs> it's never happened. <laughs> it happened today. How did it go? So I've been running around everywhere. I, I quickly left the house uh, when they were coming over and I, they sent me a text actually which is a very reassuring text i was a little bit worried yeah. because i have you know it's a one bedroom flat literally kitchen dining area and a very small bedroom and i have 500 plants in that space oh my god um, like living walls tanks fountains like every surface of the wall is covered in i've got staghorn ferns that are mounted so it's a little bit like a like one of those taxidermy displays of like deer heads yeah but plants. <laughs> so it's like horn ferns mounted on the wall. And I kind of thought this is not going to go well. But yeah, they they haven't kicked me out yet. Um, so I do have, I have a lot of plants, but it's functionally because I don't have a garden and I can't have one. So I very often hear that house plants, when are you going to stop doing house plants and do real gardening? And I funnily enough think that's, that's a really strange way of putting it because I think a house plants, depending on how you do them, interior horticulture is actually much harder. Outdoor horticulture, plant a hole, stick an apple tree in. If you water it for the first couple of years, you don't have to do anything for the next hundred. If you don't water your houseplants every week, they die. They're actually really tricky to get right. And particularly if you're trying to do complex things like water fountains that are planted up, like living walls. Yeah, it's, it's a constant 
source of pleasure for me. And I think particularly at the moment, it being winter, if you have outdoor space, you can really enjoy it in the UK if you're a fair weather gardener like me. You can realistically enjoy it for three to four months. Then the rest of the time, it's kind of a bit of a chore. <laughs> you might have to do sweeping up leaves, planting up stuff, but you're uncomfortable. You're in a dirty sweater. It's not great. I can, on a January night when it's pouring down with rain and maybe it's minus five, sit and pretend like I'm in the middle of a rainforest. It's sunny. The plants are constantly growing. I have them under lots of grow lamps. Uh, I have water lilies that are just coming into flower right now, um, all indoors. And, you know, I can watch Netflix at the same time. It's the ultimate in gardening. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with you. I really admire the work that you put in because uh, I'm I'm definitely an outdoor gardener. I kill okay. every houseplant that comes into my house. It's a very embarrassing thing for a gardening editor to admit, I know. But yeah, me and houseplants, yeah, I'm definitely uh, chuck it in the ground in a hole and water it and just let it do its thing. So I really yeah. admire that you're able to to, well. to keep these houseplants so happy in an environment that, you know, obviously indoors is a little bit close to what they're used to, but it, it's yeah. quite challenging, isn't it? it? It's a real challenge because the indoor environment is nothing like any natural environment, so particularly when low light levels dip, they tend to get in the winter, it tends to get warmer. There's very few environments in nature that when the light levels start going down, temperatures start going up and start getting drier. It's completely artificial in every way. It's almost like a cave that's just been illuminated. So it is much harder to grow houseplants, I think. And I think it does require extra skill. I'm not saying that I'm super skilled. What I'm saying is it does require it. But I, what I think is great about that is I do gardening because I enjoy it. One of the things I enjoy is the challenge, and I enjoy learning things, and plants are constantly teaching me those things. So the fact that it is harder for me, I think is actually, I used to think was a huge handicap, and now I think it's a wonderful thing because I can constantly learn things, and I can be su surprised by new discoveries at February at 11 o'clock at night, uh, which, you know, you couldn't do with regular horticulture. At least you couldn't do with regular horticulture in your average suburban garden. You could if you had a lab, but but it's a different, a different set of circumstances. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you talk about Singapore a lot. Yeah. And I'm interested in the fact that everything you've chosen so far is very much lots of greenery, what we would term house plants, more tropical yeah. plants of water, you know, waterfalls like your outdoor shower, your yeah. pool. Is this in some way your fantasy inspired by? Oh, you know, that's more a good question. Places? Well, I mean, yeah, I've always thought, I have wondered about this because I grew up there and I spent my formative years in the tropics. But when I was a child, all I wanted was a temperate garden. Because when I was a kid, like the only gardening media that I was exposed to was Gardener's World. So, you know, my grandma in Wales used to tape that stuff on VHS. She used to mail it to me. And this poor woman was so under the thumb that she would email, she would mail me like the packets of seed that would correspond with the episodes. And uh, I, I just fantasized about having it. And I, I would go to Wales on, you know, the occasional summer holiday and I would all just want to have bulbs and I'd get all the bulb catalogues and sometimes it wasn't even the right time of year and I would get the stuff home and you, I would have them in the freezer to try and simulate winter. So my mum would open up the freezer and there'd just be like Tupperware with hyacinths inside. And that's what I, you know, absolutely craved on having. And I think that it's partially having what you can't have, and that's what that it's the challenge that's really exciting. So in one sense, I mean, it does make sense that I grew up in the tropics and I do like a tropical atmosphere, but I 
I think it's mainly about the challenge. And the other thing I, I think is it's about immaturity. When I was trying to create different themes for terrariums, for example, I have a lot of terrariums and I try and create, you know, you're creating a miniaturized landscape, essentially like a railway model landscape. So you're kind of trying to picture what biotope this might be. And I realized that they're all things like King Kong's Island. <laughs> so I'd watch the film and be like, I wonder if I can recreate those floating islands. Is it Jurassic Park themed? And I'm like, there, it does tend to be a kid's storybook slash kid's blockbuster, summer blockbuster theme running throughout them. And I think that's the wonderful thing about tropical landscapes. There isn't quite the same, that kind of falling into Rousseau painting image. When you want to inspire kids to be excited about plants, it tends to be the ones that are enormous and make them feel tiny, the kind of thing that, you know, Peter Pan's Island would be like. And I think it's really that escapism that excites me and the challenge, because many of the plants I, I like the most, you couldn't grow in the tropics. Cymbidium orchids, which I struggle to grow in the UK because my flat's too warm, they won't grow in the tropics precisely for that reason. They actually require cool conditions. And I've seen loads around in London, actually in this area, all outdoors. So it, it's it's not necessarily about the climate as such, as, as much as the, the look, the aesthetic of the plants. Are there any landscapes that you know, you find yourself returning to again and again in your mind or in, oh, in the world? Oh, that's a really that, good uh, question. So I think my the landscapes that I've been most inspired by when I've seen them um, have been tropical, but tropical montane, so high-altitude tropical forest. I used to live in Ecuador for a while. And certainly if you go there or if you go to the Canary Islands, for example, this kind of evergreen forest that's cool and wet enough to be constantly humid. You also see it in places like at Java at high elevation. So you have trees that are completely covered in green because they're wrapped in this perfect emerald velvety moss. It's almost like someone's got some kind of spray and it's just flocked everything uh, in this incredible green gloss. It's those environments that they almost feel like something like an Ewok village. Would be, you, you turn the corner and see something like that. It feels so primeval and so fairy tale like and nothing like you would see in your everyday life that I've been inspired by. Particularly, I'm not a huge fan of flowers, actually, but one of the most dense ecosystems for the pure number of flowers per square inch is this really, really high-altitude ecosystem um, in places like Ecuador. When you go above about 3,000 meters from sea level, I described it, I, I had a mate who was living in a local town who's from the UK, and I said, do you want to go on a hike to see this really rare remnant patch of forest? And I said, I think I've seen it. And I said, okay, well, how would you describe it? And he said, does it look like a posh person's garden? And I was like, that is the, it, it, there are so many flowers in this natural wild forest that it looks like Chelsea Flower Show horticulturists have spent their whole life making it look like that. But that's just naturally how it looks. You've obviously been to so many places around the world with your work yeah. to see some of these incredible things. And you spoke earlier about how when you were young, you were obsessed with plants, yeah. uh, even if it was the more temperate side and not necessarily what you could get your hands on. It's, so it was very, very early passion of yours. Yes. So I have talked to people before about this because the number one question I tend to get is, so what made you first interested in plants? And it's the number one question I get everywhere. Like, you know, when I get in a cab and people find out what I do or in a pub, like just chatting to strangers. And I at first felt like there was a huge pressure to come up with an origin story to describe that because it's almost like explain yourself and I thought well okay well I grew up in the tropics so 
there's more opportunity to see plants because you're outdoors more often and the plants are actively growing. And I suppose you can't be excited about something you've never been exposed to. So if you have more exposure, maybe you're more interested. And, you know, certainly my grandma as well in, in Malaysia would take me around the garden and show me things. In Southeast Asia, people still use plants for things. There's no none of this idea, this this modern Western idea that plants are just outdoor soft furnishings. They're just there to look pretty. There's this will get rid of your headache. You know, this tastes nice in soup. It's raining. Well, let me take this palm leaf and turn it into a hat. You know, in like 10 seconds of origami, she could rip a palm leaf off and I'd, you'd, you'd have a hat. And I think it might be some of those things. But I asked my cousins, because I have like 5,000 Catholic cousins in Malaysia. None of them, not even a single one is interested in plants. And they all had that same background. So I kind of think, for me, it's almost answering that question is like asking my big brother, who loves football, Paul, has anyone ever said to you, why are you interested in football? Has anyone ever said to you, does the love of football run in your family? Has anyone ever said, oh, did you have a really inspirational teacher that made you interested in football? And he said, no, because football's interesting, James. <laughs> and to me, I think the question's like, why aren't you interested in plants? What happened? Who hurt you? <laughs> how, did they, how did they get it so wrong? I mean, plants are the solution to every, every major problem that faces our species, from climate change to food security to the biodiversity crisis. They're all underpinned by plants and understanding about them. The fact that we can see red-green traffic lights is down to millions of years of coevolution with plants. The very way we see the world and our color vision, the fact that our eyes are on the front of our head rather than the sides of our head, like most mammals, to give us binocular vision, to be able to see the world in 3D, is all down to plants. Really, every question about humanity is down to millions of years of coevolution with plants. So I think it's fundamentally weird that not everyone's like me. <laughs> so this dream garden of yours, which we have uh, with a lovely glass framing, like okay. a lap pool, and a gorgeous outdoor shower. You're helping me picture this a lot better now. Yeah, okay, I like it. <laughs> and, and possibly a living wall, you know, making sure you're completely surrounded by greenery. What else would have to be in there? I mean, you say you don't like flowers, but surely you're going to have some flowers in amongst all of that green. It's it's not so much that I don't like flowers. I just think they're overused. And, you know, particularly the color of the flowers and a lot of breeding of flowers. So one of the things I'm fascinated about as a botanist is when you see the wild ancestors of many of the flowers that we know. And I had for years completely dismissed things like begonias as a kind of Barbara Cartland, pastel, you know, doily cover monstrosity. But that's what breeding has done to them. When you see them in the wild, you know, er everything from a fuchsia to a dahlia can look completely different. It's the breeding work. They all go into the same funnel and breeders are like, what we need to do is increase the flower size four times. We need to increase the number of petals. We need to increase the color or the intensity of what they have. And they all end up fundamentally looking the same. And I think that's, that's a bit of a shame, and particularly the, the amount of them. You know, sugar is nice, but adding sugar to every recipe isn't the, isn't the solution to making it taste better. <laughs> you could pour sugar and salt and MSG on anything and it would taste better. But there's more, to, there's more to plants than that. What about texture? What about leaf shape? What about all these other things other than just color? There are definitely flowers I like, but I think you need to think about them more like Easter eggs that you've got to hunt down. And when you see them, 
things that pop out and you think, wow, I didn't notice that that's just popped out. And that's exciting. If you're going for wall-to-wall bedding plants, you might as well have painted your wall whatever color bedding plant you wanted or have plastic ones. <laughs> so I am a big fan of some, some orchids simple, not too bred ones. Actually, a lot of the temperate orchids, I think, are the most beautiful ones, the ones that we can grow outdoors in the UK anyway. So I'd probably have in the living wall some temperate orchids dotted through. Um, I've seen that in places like Kew Gardens, there are actually some outdoor epiphytic orchids that are planted in selected places. So some of those popping through a, a wall of ferns wouldn't look bad. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll let some flowers in. Okay, thank you. It's a yeah. special With treat. moderation. Yeah. <laughs> And is there anything else that you think you would have to have in this dream garden of yours? So there's one other thing that I would like to experiment with. I've experimented so far with medium levels of success, but the internet assures me that this can be incredible. So I'd like to try. So it's this, you have to bear with me, it's a long description. So it's a traditional method of growing plants from Latin America, particularly in Brazil. Now, I don't speak Portuguese, so you can have to bear with me again. So I think you pronounce it pau de bajo. And it means stick of clay or branch of clay. And essentially what it is, is a hollow vessel made of porous terracotta. So it's non-glazed ceramic. And it's a, almost like a giant test tube. So a long, thin thing. And you pour water on the inside and it slowly percolates out. So it's, it's, it's kind of leaky, but in a very steady way. And what that creates is this long, tall cylinder, almost like a chimney pot, which has a constantly wet surface, but with great air movement. And they usually have three little holes in the top so you can hang it up. And people hang them on the inside of verandas. And what that creates is this kind of paradoxical set of conditions where it's always moist, but has really good air drainage. The plants that will grow in that are things like orchids, things like epiphytes, mosses, ferns, things that are actually really tricky to grow in traditional pot culture because they require these two opposite environments at the same time. Now, I've seen this has worked really well in Brazil. I've now also seen that there are some Indonesian accounts on Twitter who've just got huge urns and they have a really similar condition. They fill the urn up and then they've planted the entire outside of the urn in peperomias, in mosses, and ferns. And it's a kind of a perfect combination of hard landscaping of really graphic architecture, cylinders, urn shapes, squares, circles, whatever you want to have. But it's softened by this kind of clothing in green. And I love the idea that you don't have to have hard or soft landscaping. You can have something that's a hybrid. I've definitely seen there's a whole, actual whole school of thought in places like Indonesia where they've planted up um, these, I think they call them tamandama, and they're round balls where they'll plant everything from a bunch of epiphytes and even cacti. So they're essentially a bit like a very, very fancy looking hanging basket, but with attention paid to the structure of the plant. So it's like a Japanese arrangement, like an Ikebana arrangement, but of living plant material that's floating. Um, so I'd like to experiment with some of that stuff. I have tried so far with limited success, but I think that gardens should be about experimentation. And, you know, if it fails, I just won't post it on Instagram. No one will know. <laughs> <laughs> We've talked a lot about the things that you would have to have in your fantasy garden. But is there something that you would rather chuck off the building, that you would throw on the compost heap, you would never allow in the front door? Specifically, 
variegated aroids. They're so basic. (laughs) (laughs) They are are absolutely terrible. And every time I say it, I get in trouble. But it's just the truth that I don't care. You can cancel me for that if you want. Um, So I I just think that in, in a very similar way to overbreeding plants, once you make, I can get that there is a certain visual interest in something being variegated. But when you make things variegated, they all look the same. So whatever, whether it's an ivy or a kind of really rare philodendron, fundamentally, you can't almost tell by the time everything has been variegated. So I had to think about almost everyone else was probably going to say slugs because people hate slugs. I think for me, one of my big problems is algae. Having as much water in the creations that I want to create and particularly having, you know, a living wall and a shower and a huge pool, you're going to end up with problems with algae. And it's it's the one that I have the most difficulty with. There are lots of different things you can do to keep it down, and I've managed to keep it down. Um, but once you start having algae, and particularly what it, it's no longer actually technically an algae, but we call it a blue-green algae. I think it's an, a cyanic bacteria. It can be toxic to other plants. So it's not just a case of it, it stops the water being clear. It can actually kill off whole colonies of moss. So you'll have this beautiful vessel I created the Pau de Bajo thing. There was a, this perfect cylinder of moss, and I had these little carnivorous plants all on the outside. And to me, it looked like something, you know, like you discovered it in Angkor Wat, an old pot that had been completely covered. And then one day, algae got in, and it all was wiped out. So if I could find a sol- simple solution to that, I've done everything. I've done chlorination. I've done, you know, uh, constant water changes. It always gets there. If I could fix that, then 80% of my workload would be reduced. 80%. Yeah, easily. I mean, and if I had a huge swimming pool, that would be the the number one thing you'd be trying to get down. And the the smaller the body of water, the more the more problem algae usually is because the ecosystem is less balanced in smaller bodies of water. And if I'm going to be showering and swimming in this every day, yeah, that that I'd like it to be clean. So that's what I would do. Wow. No algae. Yeah. Fantastic. So we've come to the end of our chat about your fantasy garden, which sounds like a really amazing place to be. We've got the sliding, retractable glass roof and doors so that it's an indoor-outdoor space. It's completely green. Yeah. Dripping with greenery. I'll, I've, we've discussed this. We'll let you have a couple of flowers when Thank you come over you. and visit. Yeah, yeah I'll make sure they're, in, they're in bloom for you. Mostly tropical foliage from your living wall and it'll be full of water as well with a gorgeous pool and an outdoor shower. But if I was to give you three more quick fire things that you're allowed to add and include in this fantasy garden, what are the three last things that you couldn't live without? Okay, so I would have to say tree ferns. There's something crazy and jurassic about them they also had a huge amount of height and they also had planting space so the cordex itself the tree fern trunk that can be planted up so you could plant loads of things all over it in fact you can buy tree fern cordexes from ferns that have died in horticulture they slice them up and you can actually use that to grow orchids on it in chunks so if i had a a canopy of tree ferns that would hopefully hide the glazed roof when when it was out and just gives you that sense of scale and extra planting. I'd probably plant some epiphytic orchids maybe even on that, so that's something else I could do. I would pick species that are not both for aesthetics in terms of the flower itself and also for wider aesthetics of the whole space. I would probably not plant hybrids. 
I would go for species types. Their flower is more interesting and they flower less. So you would have tiny blooms appearing unexpectedly here and there to surprise you throughout a space rather than turning them into geraniums. So you just have a wall of pink. Um, I'd probably do that. And I have a weird obsession with moss and I understand that, you know, no one's interested in moss. So I understand it's weird, but I've been to Japan and you can go to nurseries there that are hundreds of years old and you can see dozens of named moss cultivars, ones that look like tiny feathers, ones that are that perfect green velvety carpet, ones that are like tiny little palm trees. And I just, I, th I find that endlessly fascinating. The fact that even on this tiny nanoscale, almost like you'd have to get the macro photo app on your phone out just to be able to see them, that they're so tiny, that level of detail. I'd love to be able to experiment with that. In the UK, the only thing you can buy in a garden center with the word moss on it is moss killer. And ironically, we have one of the few climates on the planet that's really conducive to growing moss. If you go to, there's an amazing um, Japanese-themed garden in LA, which I've been to, I can't remember the name of it, but they really struggle in a desert climate to grow moss, and they'll do anything to get this perfect lush lawn of moss. In the UK, we're trying to work against nature to get rid of it. So it would be really, really fun to have maybe six different species, different sizes, different shapes, some native, some maybe some non-native ones, all dotted in this space to really add to that primeval kind of look. That sounds like absolutely wonderful. I mean, do you have any moss growing in your flat at the moment? Yes, I actually have tried. So the one thing you can buy, what I've discovered is that the world of uh, aquascaping. So that's basically gardening inside aquariums. So you're having an aquarium, but you may or may not have any fish or very few fish. The function is creating basically a flooded terrarium. There's this whole parallel universe of horticulture of all these plants that I never knew about that are all miniaturized. And one of the things they have is at least 10 different cultivars of moss, um, some of which are quite expensive and rare to get hold of. You can get tiny posted stamp sizes for, you know, 40 quid, but, you know, specially mailed to you and everything. So I do have lots of moss. I'm trying growing it underwater. But I'm trying using the same species above the waterline. So what I'll do is I'll have a living wall that wicks up water from an aquarium. I'll plant the aquarium with moss and then try and slowly encourage it to colonize the living wall. So I do have some, some of which work very well, some of which don't. But it's all trial and error. Uh, but by the time I get this fantasy garden, <laughs> hopefully I'll have it cracked and I'll be able to try and even more new ones. Yeah, yeah. and your your landlady of, of your fantasy garden will oh, be Oh, I won't have a landlady. That'll be the best <laughs> thing. The, the number one thing. The thing I'm going to ban is anyone else coming to it. I want to enjoy this on my own. Oh, that's yeah. interesting because other guests have said, oh, I would have to have visitors to my fantasy garden. Oh, my garden. goodness. Absolutely not. I'm always hearing that, you know, oh, you should always do your front garden rather than your back garden because if you do your front garden, you get to meet your neighbors and, you know, you get to foster the sense of as a community. And I, I do understand that some people like that. I am definitely the British person <laughs> that builds a barrier, like a Berlin Wall, all on the outside. And the whole function of a garden is to get away from other people. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, 
it's not that I hate people. I just really like my own company. And I also like to have it as a safe space where I've escaped from everything. And for five minutes, I can pretend that, you know, we're not in an apocalyptic world news cycle. Uh, and, you know, the world is a terrible place. In my garden, I can, I'm master of everything. I can control it all. And I think this is one of the reasons why so many, particularly younger people in the pandemic, really got into horticulture. Because it's not just you're escaping into the wonders of nature. You're escaping into a universe where five minutes you've got control about the situation. You can predict what's going to happen. You can nurture it. And, you know, not everything is going to be terrible. So in my very, very small paradise, very few guests are allowed. You, you can come. Oh, thank <laughs> Everyone you. Everyone else, no way. <laughs> <laughs> that was James Wong, whose new video series is available on his Instagram at Botany Geek. Thank you for listening to Talking Gardens, brought to you by the team behind Gardens Illustrated. For more plant and garden inspiration, subscribe to the magazine and go to gardensillustrated.com. See you next time.